Good morning. My name is Whitley Bechtel, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture for this morning. And it comes from Acts 15, 1 through 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas had some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being set on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, and that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assemblies fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by name, my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, and from sexual immortality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. And... For from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leaning men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both with the apostles and elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, and have seen good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives from the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. 
So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Thanks, Whit. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Community Church this morning. Uh, before we get started uh, unpacking this passage this morning, I have just a few announcements for us um, as a church. So in two weeks, uh, September 13th, that Sunday, uh, our outdoor service at 945 is going to be a baptism service. So usually we do this at a pond uh, that's about 20, 25 minutes away, but they were booked up with weddings that have gotten pushed back. And so we are going to do a baptism here at our own church outside. After that, at lunchtime, we're going to have a picnic out here on the lawn and we may spread out up into the parking lot. Um, so please mark that on your calendars. We would love for you to be here as well. If you're somebody that wants to be baptized, um, please let one of the pastor elders know, and we would love to sit down and talk with you about what it means to be baptized. And then we would be thrilled, uh, to dunk you and uh, to have you testify to the fact that Jesus has worked in you and that you are buried and raised and alive with him. As well, um, we had our first night of our two-night Grace and Race event this past Wednesday. And so if you're interested, uh, we have part two coming up this coming Wednesday at 7 o'clock here at the church. Um, please register for that online uh, as we're trying to keep in-person attendance around where we do for our service here, around 75 people. But we would love for that. It'll be online for you as well. We would love for you to join us. Even if you weren't at part one, we'd love for you to, to be here and join us for that. Let's turn our attention now to Acts chapter 15. And sometimes when we preach through the scriptures, passage by passage, through a book of the Bible, as we tend to do at this church, there are just seasons where what occurs in the passage just seems to sing with relevance to our own day. And as we've preached through the book of Acts this summer, at least to us as a preaching team, it has felt that way. It has felt like the book of Acts was written at this time in our lives. And this morning, I think we're in the same place. And I'm not just saying that because I'm the one preaching and so I want you to listen to me. But I really do think this morning that if we pay attention to the words that Jesus has for us in his word, that we will be satisfied and have our dry, parched mouths quenched with the oasis of Jesus this morning. But on the surface, though, you might have heard that passage read and think, okay, uh, I don't really see how um, with all that talk about animals being strangled and eating meat with the blood. Uh, I joked with Susan Elder this morning when we were talking about what songs to, to sing. And I said, any of your best songs about meat with the blood in it and being strangled. <laughs> but on the surface, it can seem a bit obscure. But at its core, this passage is about the fundamentals of the gospel, the good news 
of what it means to know Jesus Christ and how that good news works itself out in the life of a church community on the ground in relationships with one another. And so we're going to talk this morning as we uh, dive into this passage. We're going to talk in terms of good news math. That's the title of my sermon this morning. So we're going to talk in terms of a math equation. So what is the correct equation, if you will, of the gospel? And then what results does that have in the life of the church? That's what we're going to be seeking to look at as we look at this text this morning. But before we can come to a right equation, before they came to a right equation at this Jerusalem council, there was first a wrong equation, a problem with the gospel that they had to address head on. And we see that in verse 1, if you look there with me. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This group of men journeyed from Judea to Antioch and stirred up trouble in Antioch with this teaching. Now, in order to rightly understand this problem, we're going to have to do a little bit of background work. And we're going to have to do that a couple times this morning so that we can bring ourselves in to this text and understand it. So if you would just stick with me, it will be worth it. It will pay off as we try to uncover what this text means. But if you remember, as we've been preaching through the book of Acts here this summer, that both the Ethiopian man in chapter 8 and then the Cornelius in chapter 10 have been these isolated incidents of Gentiles coming to know Jesus. But as we've progressed, and especially over the past few weeks in chapters 13 and 14, as we saw the uh, Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, We have seen a swath of Gentiles converted to the gospel. And now while the Ethiopian men and Cornelius were men that we know were familiar with Jewish laws and customs, these Jews, I'm sorry, these Gentiles that are being converted on this missionary journey do not really have much much that they know about Judaism and about its laws. They're not familiar with Jewish law and customs. And so the question then naturally arises, okay, if God is working among the Gentiles, if he is working to bring them into his people, do these Gentiles have to live like Jews in order to be right with God and in order to be welcome in his church? Right? We clearly read in Acts 10, uh, earlier on in the summer, that God's salvation now in broad terms includes the Gentiles. But the question is, what does it mean on the ground that Gentiles are included in the church? How do Jews and Gentiles relate in the church together? How do they come together? Do, do these Gentiles have to be circumcised and eat kosher? And, and follow all of these Jewish laws around food and purity to be right with God and members of the church? Or to phrase it in a way that would feel a little bit more relevant and contemporary for us today, uh, and it might be more provocative, does salvation and incorporation into the church of Jesus Christ come by trust in Jesus and works? And that's what these Jewish leaders were, were teaching. They were teaching that the equation of the gospel is Jesus plus observance of the Jewish law equals reconciliation with God 
and welcome among his people. And it's very clear that Paul and Barnabas believe that this is a false representation of the gospel. In verse 2, it says that they had no small dissension and debate with them about this. And eventually, that's why they take it to this larger church council. Because they think this is a big deal, and they do not agree with this definition of the gospel. The stakes for them are very high. The stakes for the church were high. That's why one commentator, when he's introducing this passage, he says this. Theologically, the truth of the gospel was at stake in Jerusalem at this council. And relationally, the stakes were just as high. A wrong decision in Jerusalem and gracious openness would be replaced with jaundiced exclusiveness. The stakes of getting the gospel right are high. So if that's the wrong equation, then what does this council at Jerusalem decide is the right equation, the true equation of the gospel? What do they decide? Well, in verse 10, Peter begins to put his finger on what they come to decide as the council and really what the whole issue is with this wrong equation that these Jewish leaders are teaching. Look with me at verse, verse 10. It says, now, therefore, that therefore points back to the fact that God has included Jews and Gentiles into his people now together. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter says here that placing a burden or a yoke of law-keeping on the backs of these Gentiles coming into the church denies what God has said, and it places the same burden on them that has been on the Jews and on their fathers since the beginning, right? It says that the giants of the Jewish faith, the fathers of these Jewish people, not even Abraham or Moses or David could could fulfill and keep all of these intricacies of the Jewish law. It's placing a burden on their backs that not even these giants of the faith could uphold. And the problem is, is that we all naturally relate to God and try to find ultimate significance in our lives based upon our own efforts. Our own works, what we do, that is the fundamental disposition of our hearts as human beings. Now think about this for just a second. Think about how you view God. In the deepest part of your soul, how you view God. Do you feel scared of God? Like you constantly owe him. And if you don't pay up, he's going to be angry with you. Or as a, if you're a Christian here this morning, do you live constantly under the guilt of feeling like you're disappointing God by not reading your Bible enough, by not evangelizing enough, by not attending church enough? Or maybe you just couch it in terms of what, what brings you ultimate significance in life? Where do you place ultimate meaning in your life? Do you think that comes by your own efforts? So if you are somebody who just can't give up the hustle, you're working all the time, 
And you just can't seem to stop working. Because if you stop working, you ultimately realize that you'll never be successful enough to find meaning or significance. Or maybe you're somebody in today's day and age where it's tempting to turn politics into a religion. Where you fight tooth and nail for your political cause or your political candidate. And then whenever they don't get in or whenever your cause doesn't get passed into law, you feel absolutely crushed because you feel meaningless. Or maybe as a parent, you live under the weight that you have to do everything perfect with your kid. And if they deviate from that perfect desired path at any point, then you are a failure as a parent. You see, we all place ultimate meaning and significance in our lives on the basis of what we do. We ultimately think that our standing before God, the way that our lives will be judged at the end of the day, is on the basis of our own efforts. And that we ultimately realize that this is a burden because we all fail on the basis of our own efforts. The law as a means of right standing before God only leads to bondage. It's like Peter's saying to these people who want to place the law on the backs of the Gentiles here. Okay, let's just talk about you for a second. How is your own law keeping going? Are you actually happy, free, filled with joy and an experience of God's love for you? Or do you feel like a slave? Do you feel like an animal plowing the fields on a hot day with a heavy yoke placed upon your back that's weighing you down? But in Christ, Peter says that God provides another way of relating to him entirely. This is what verse 11 says. Peter says, but we believe, but in contrast to the yoke and burden of the law in verse 10, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. See, the message of the true gospel is grace. Now, don't snooze through this, right? I know when we hear that word grace, it's easy to snooze through it because we've heard it a million times. But the word grace means gift. What is the gift of grace which God has shown towards us? It is nothing other than himself in the person of Jesus. See, Jesus has lived the life that we all should have lived in perfect obedience to God. Jesus died the death we should have died for our failure to keep the law of God. Jesus worked and achieved on our behalf where we failed. And now as the resurrected one, for everyone who trusts in his life and death, the legal penalty of the law has been met for our sin in Christ. And now we are counted as those who have fulfilled that whole law in Christ. That's what we call justification, right? Paul preached about it just two chapters earlier in Acts chapter 13. Although we didn't deserve it, Jesus gave himself for our punishment and he gives himself now as our righteousness before the father. And this is the same for Jew or Gentile, all people who are united by faith to Christ. This is true of you. And yet so many of us fail to see that because of what Jesus has done, God now relates to us in Jesus Christ, not in terms of a law, by legal terms, but in terms of a family member, as a father by his grace. 
You see, I think we, we so oftentimes still think of our relationship to God in terms of a legal one. But what the gospel says is that Jesus has guaranteed your legal righteous status before God. You have died to the law in him. But now in him, God is not your judge. God is your father. And he loves you. You have a family relationship to God through the grace of Jesus. Let me put it this way. It would be weird and unethical for a judge to invite a defendant in a case that they are presiding over, over to their house for dinner during the course of that case. That would be strange and it would be unethical. But it is not weird at all for my dad to call and invite me over for dinner any night of the week. And that's because we have an entirely different type of relationship altogether. You see, with a father, you don't have to try to prove your innocence. With a father, you don't have to sit in guilt. With a father, you don't have to earn his love. With a father, you don't have to prove anything to him or about yourself. You see, because of the grace of Jesus towards you, you now relate to God as father and he loves you with the very same love that he loves his own son, Jesus. And this is the point of that classic parable that we've all heard that Jesus gives of the prodigal sons, right? At first, both sons see their relationship with their father as a legal one, one that they have to work to uphold. So the prodigal takes his father's inheritance early, essentially wishes his father dead, goes and squanders all of that wealth, and then comes back to his father and says, Father, let me make it up to you. Let me work in order for you to welcome me back into your house. And the father says, not a chance. You're my son. You're welcome here. And he welcomes him in, puts his coat on him, throws him a party. And then the older son makes the same mistake as the younger son. The older son says, but father, I've worked hard for you. I've been loyal to you. And the father says, that's not what it's about. You're my son. This is a different kind of relationship altogether. Not one that you have to work for, but one that you receive. You see, Jesus invites us to come to the father as we are apart from our own achievements, apart from our own status. And he is our father by grace. And in all of this, church, see the freedom that is found in the grace of Jesus for you. Jesus shows us that no amount of hard work, no amount of advocacy for a political cause, no amount of Bible reading or evangelism or church attendance, no amount of obedience from your children can change God into a judge who now wants to cast you out if you are in Christ Jesus. He loves you as a father. And he loves you because none of what you do defines who you are before him. Jesus defines who you are before him. The grace of Jesus casts out guilt, fear, shame, and anxiety and replaces them with joy, freedom, love, peace, and gratitude. Because we have the loving gaze of the Father, the only one who truly counts in this whole universe. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Jesus. Good news math is Jesus plus nothing else. Jesus. With that message of the gospel 
clearly defined for us here at this council. That we're made right with God. We're accepted and adopted into his family by the free grace of Jesus apart from our works. What does that mean for us as the church? How does the church respond to the good news of grace in Jesus? Well, in verses 19 and 20, we start to see a move towards that. Would you look at those verses again with me? This is the Apostle James now speaking. Uh, He says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, like I said at the beginning, this does not seem like the way that you and I would naturally think that we would work out the gospel among us together. Those things don't feel very relevant to us this morning. And also it seems strange. Okay, so think about this with me. If James and the leaders don't want to cause extra unnecessary trouble for these Gentiles, if they don't want to put the burden of the law on them, then why these Gentiles who are freed from the law, why do they seem to add an extra law right back on top of them? It seems like they're adding these four things as a law back on top of the Gentiles. Well, let's think about what these realities are for a second and what this action was doing in the life of the church. Now, these four realities all in some way pertain to Jewish purity laws. Laws that were originally given by God to the Jewish people in order to separate them from the nations. So what's occurring here, what we're witnessing here at this church in Acts 15, at this council, is not a rebinding of Gentiles under the yoke of the law as a foundational principle of their relationship to God, but it's a request to these Gentiles to sacrifice in love for the sake of one another in the church. You see, it would have been difficult for the Jewish people People who grew up equating welcome in God's family and right standing before God with certain practices that they would have been, they would have done that would have been observable every time that they interacted with somebody who was not Jewish, especially with regards to food. And so to have Gentiles now in their life, in their community, welcome them over in their houses for dinner, these would have been very pressing realities. The types of food that you ate, would have felt like very pressing realities. And so the council, what they're doing is they're requesting that the Gentiles would abide by these four principles in order to help facilitate true community, in order that true community might happen in the churches. They're not driving the Gentiles back to the law and saying, hey, work hard and do these things in order to earn God's favor, and then maybe we'll welcome you. They're saying, no, As welcome members of the family of God, together with the Jews, we implore you to live this way so that we can actually relate to one another in love in the church. And so the main point for us to take away from this is that the gospel creates a culture of love and sacrifice within the people of God. We often think of salvation by grace. When we hear that, we think of individual terms. Of going to, sal- going to heaven when we die. But just like the grace of Jesus changes our relationship with God to the, bra- to, the, to the relationship that's a familial one, that's a family relationship, 
He changes our relationship with one another in the same way. And see, especially as Americans, I think we, this is so foreign to us. We as Americans are very concerned about our legal rights. And when someone doesn't give us our legal rights, we proceed to take legal action against them. So we can relate together with one another as long as you don't violate my rights. But the moment that you violate my rights, then we can't have a relationship. But the gospel of grace creates a culture of family where we lay down our rights out of love and respect for one another. See, the mantra of the church is not, how can I get my rights from you, but how can I give up my rights in love for you? That's what the church is about. That's how the gospel creates a welcoming culture in the life of the church. We see this even more clearly spelled out in Romans chapter 15. The Roman church was a church where Jew and Gentile were coming together in the life of the church, much like is described here in Antioch, that they're arguing at this council over. And look at how Paul applies the gospel to the nuts and bolts of their life together in the Roman church. This is Romans chapter 15, parts of the first seven verses there. It says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Do you see how that works? The the grace of Jesus grounds our welcoming, self-sacrificial community. Jesus, the God of the universe, lovingly restricted his freedom and took on our human form. Jesus, the innocent one, suffered the gravest injustice that this world has ever seen in order to make the unjust righteous. Jesus gave up his rights and died for us in order to welcome us in as family. And so therefore, because of this self-deference and a willingness to submit to one another in love should be the mark of any church that truly grasps the gospel of Jesus. It has to be that way. It's out of step with the gospel, as Paul says to Peter in Galatians 2, for it not to be that way. And so what are some ways that this might play out in our community? What might this type of self-deferential, sacrificial love on the basis of the gospel look like in our context? I'm going to give us two practical examples as we close this morning. The first one relates to those pieces of cloth you all have over your face in our current crisis and situation with the coronavirus. Now, a year ago... We as a pastoral staff planned this sermon series through the book of Acts, at least up to this point here at the end of summer of 2020. And when we planned that sermon series, if you would have told me in July of 2019 that you're going to be preaching on Acts chapter 15 and you're going to apply Acts chapter 15 to a piece of cloth over my face 
And that not only that, that it's going to feel like a very weighty thing. I would have laughed in your face. (laughs) There's no way we could have foreseen this happening. But here we are. But it can be very easy for us in the church to make wearing a mask or not wearing a mask a functional requirement for welcome in the church. We can say either you're on my team or you're not on my team based on what we have over our face. And let's just acknowledge this is a gray issue in a lot of ways. And it is difficult to work out in the life of a community. And I am just as tired of dealing with it and thinking about it as you are. But we're going to have to deal with it here soon. Fall's coming. We can't have an outdoor service for two-thirds of our church uh, up through December or else. I know I can't play guitar if it's that cold. But our, our elders, our pastor elders are praying through this, thinking about it. We want you to help, to help us and join us in that. We don't have the answer figured out yet as to what this is going to look like. But I'll just say this. This is not an obstacle. This is an opportunity for us to show what the church actually is by the way that we love one another through this season. So for those of us who think that mask wearing is the right thing to do, you have an opportunity to understand those who disagree with you, particularly those who might equate wearing a mask in church with a certain type of legalistic requirement for coming in to worship God. And you may have to defer your expectation that you come into the building and absolutely everybody has a mask on. And for those of you who simply don't prefer to wear a mask, this is a chance for you to restrict your freedom for the sake of brothers and sisters who are vulnerable and to wear one. This, again, let me say this, this is not an obstacle. This is an opportunity for us to show love to one another, to defer to one another. That's what the gospel would demand that we do. That's the first example. The second example of how this might play out in our church is the way that we foster and cultivate multi-ethnic community. Now, if you'll join us on Wednesday, shameless plug time, if you'll join us on Wednesday for Grace and Race, this is a lot of what we're going to be talking about. What role does the church have in working towards reconciliation in our country today? And I think And our pastor elders have thought about it and prayed for a number of years. That one of the main ways that we see racial reconciliation, the main way that it has to happen is through the church of Jesus Christ. It has to. And so as a pastor elder team for the past five years, we have been seeking the face of God and periodically bringing it before you. That our church would come to more represent the ethnic diversity of our surrounding community. But as any of you who have ever lived in any type of multi-ethnic community know, that that is so difficult. It can be easy for us, especially as most of us in here in the majority culture, it can be easy for us to view, to begin to view all of our preferences as gospel requirements. Things like the length of our service, how we respond in music and preaching to the service, the promptness of arrival at events, the style of music, all of these different things can begin to become equated with functional requirements to coming together in worship. And if you don't meet that mold, you are excluded. 
But what the gospel would say is that these are mere preferences. These are not obstacles. These are opportunities to work through as we attempt to grow into one body together. And partaking in true multi-ethnic community is deeply challenging because it challenges us to restrict our preferences for the sake of the body as a whole. But that's what church does anyway, right? You all would wish we would sing different songs at times. It's what happens in the church anyway. But we all have the opportunity to lay aside our preferences for the sake of love. And let me just say this. This is what Acts chapter 15 is about. It's about two different cultures coming together and learning how to be the body of Christ together in a unified way. Now, it's not, and you notice, it's not all on the Jews and it's not all on the Gentiles. There is a part for each to play in them coming together. But I would say it is worth pressing into for the sake of knowing Jesus more and for the sake of embodying his gospel more as we, as we lay down our own preferences for the sake of the gospel and pursuing Jesus together. Now, there's part of that that's totally out of our control. But our default as a church body should be willing, joyful, deference, and sacrifice in love for the other. And we'll leave the rest up to God and keep praying. Let me conclude with verse 31. This is what, this is the response when the people in Antioch get this letter from this Jerusalem council saying that they are free in the gospel to not live like Jewish people and be welcome. It says, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. See, when we live out and experience a true culture of gospel grace, despite all the things that might divide us and and, and drive us apart, we will know that experience When the whole church is rejoicing because of the encouragement that it truly is to be welcomed by the grace of God and by one another. Church, Jesus has gone at great lengths, at great cost to himself to welcome us into his family. So today, may we be a people who receive that welcome, who receive that gift of grace And then who turn around and quickly give it to others, even if it costs us something. And then let's rejoice as we embody the gospel of grace by giving up our rights for one another. And as we see Jesus more clearly in the process. Let's press into that together, church. It's hard, but it's worth it. Because we will know Jesus more as we do that together as a church. Let me pray for us and I'll invite the worship team back up to close us in a few songs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that because we stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, that we cannot be shaken before you. And that not only that, because of that, that you love us with the love of a father, that you welcome us into your family freely. And you did so by restricting your own freedom at great cost to yourself. And so, Father, may we be the kind of people who embody that for one another. 
May we give of ourselves. May we lay down our own lives in service to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we do that, may we experience a different type of community together than any other we experience in the world. A community where we know what it is like to truly be welcomed by Jesus Christ because of the way that we live with one another. Spirit, be among us. Help us to live in this way. And when we fail, help us to be quick to forgive and show one another the mercy of Jesus. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.